and welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is Joe Bazoyan, CFA Portfolio Manager at Manulife Investment Management with approximately $5.5 billion in assets under management. Joe, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. So, Joe, I'd like to begin. Uh, if you can tell us a little about your story and how you got involved in the business, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Um, I really started out at the bottom of the investments business. Uh, you know, I always had an interest in investments. I was on, you know, I, I participated in the you know, stock club in high school and you know, I pursued a degree in finance in college. Um, I graduated college in 89, which was a tough period economically. Um, so there really weren't all that many jobs in the investments business. The only jobs that were, that were available were um, uh, on the on the administration side. So essentially, my first job was at a transfer agency company, uh, essentially processing um, buys and sells for mutual funds. Nice. So that was a good um, entryway into the business. You know, I was able to learn uh, a fair amount. But I also realized that that wasn't the part of the business that I wanted to pursue long term. So I went to business school um, uh, locally here in Boston at Boston College. And uh, in my second year at business school, I was able to get an internship at a mutual fund company called Eaton Vance in their uh, municipal bond department. Um, that was good experience. Uh, yeah, so I was able to kind of uh, take that experience and get a job after business school with Sun Life Financial as a corporate bond analyst. Um, so I spent about eight years at Sun Life, uh, my first three years as a bond analyst covering the utility sector, energy sector. Um, and then there was an opportunity to go on the equity side of things at Sun Life, which I did um, and spent five years on the equity side uh, of things at Sun Life covering, again, energy utilities. I also picked up the REIT sector. Um, so then I uh, took a couple other jobs uh, as equity analysts. Um, I've been with Manulife Investment Management now for uh, just over nine years, uh, again, starting out as an equity analyst. But then over the last five years, um, I joined the preferred team here as a portfolio manager, as, a, as the uh, co-PM with a senior portfolio manager. And then over the last two and a half years, I've been um, co-lead portfolio manager for our preferred strategy here. Nice. So um, that's a perfect segue to my second question. Please tell us a little about your investment strategy and how you play the game. Sure. Yeah. We, so we um, we managed we managed seven funds here, five uh, public John Hancock closed end funds that are income oriented funds, and about three quarters of the assets are in preferred stock, uh, and then the other other a quarter is in common stocks of high dividend. Uh, paying companies, like mostly utilities, frankly. Um, so those are levered, five levered closed-end funds um, with average dividend yields about, uh, of about 6.5%. You know, levers kind of boost that, that, that dividend yield. And then we have a couple other offshore funds targeting the Asian markets that are pure preferred funds and don't have any equities in them. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. So we 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 think preferreds are um, you know really attractive uh, asset class. It's sort of overlooked. Um, you know, they, we think that they should be part of someone's portfolio. Uh, they offer very compelling yields, uh, similar to in yields to high yield bonds, but um, the average high yield bond credit rating is think B, whereas the average um, credit rating for preferred stock. Uh, is triple B, triple B or investment grade. So you're getting a fair amount of yield 
without taking on as much risk by buying preferred preferred stock. So we really, we really like that about about the space. Sorry, by buying quality companies. By buying preferred bonds, you mean? I'm sorry. You said by buying preferred stock. You mean you're taking on risk instead of buying preferred bond, but for, instead of buying bonds, you're buying preferred stock. Yeah, instead of buying high yield bonds, you're getting you're getting similar similar yield, right? Um, but you're not taking on as much risk. And, you know, you know, preferred preferred stock is it's just really a different part of the capital structure. It's it's below um, unsec- uh, it's below junior subordinated bonds. Um, so you typically don't have lower quality companies issuing preferred stock because investors just don't want to take on, um, you know, buying a subordinated piece of paper from a high yield company. So you typically have your large cap banks and JP Morgan's, uh, JP Morgan's, Bank of America's. Then you have many of the utilities. They're also issuers of preferred. Um, so you generally have these large cap, well-known established companies that have been around forever um, with strong balance sheets that are issued, that issued to preferred. Got it. So, so that's, that makes really good sense. And the fact that, like you said, it's often overlooked, that's also offers a lot of opportunity because most people just aren't even looking. So where they buy the common stock or the bond, but they wouldn't necessarily look at the preferred in most cases. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Understood. So uh, how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management, Joe? Yeah, I think the way we, we handle risk for our portfolios, again, we really have this focus on quality. Um, every name we look at, um, you know, we look. We have several, um, you know, items we look at for characteristics of a, of a security that we like. And we like, as I mentioned, enduring business models. So, you know, your, your financial services companies that have been around forever, your utility companies. Um, you know, we also really look for companies with strong balance sheets, um, and then also companies with sustainable free cash flow and, and solid management teams. So. I guess the answer to your question, the way we would handle risk is just by focusing on quality companies, which tend to outperform uh, during volatile market times. Um, so I guess that would be sort of the way we would, we would handle it. Okay. And then, so is that more towards looking at the balance sheet and the fundamentals of the businesses themselves, opposed to the actual performance of the stock? Yeah. So, right. So I guess, you know, I, I kind of view... You know, risky investments is ones that um, you know aren't uh, often quality companies or, or have bad balance sheets or have, you know have other risks uh, within the company. So I guess the way we we really have that focus on quality, which we have, we have shown to that um, that helps us outperform over the long term, particularly during turbulent market times. Understood. So it's more along the fundamental line than the technical line. In other words, you want to find good businesses opposed to seeing how the stock performs. And if the stock drops, it's not necessarily a concern as long as the business fundamentals are still good. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Gotcha. So I guess, Joe, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? I guess, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned over my years of investing is that, um, you know, don't think that you're smarter than the market. Uh, Often, if you see a security that is looking compelling or, or cheap, um, there's often a reason why that's the case. And to ignore the signals that the market the market is giving you is, I think, a mistake. And so, if you you know if you, you find an investment that you like, um, in, in the, but the market is telling you that there might be some risk here, I think you you really need to understand those risks and, and make sure that. Um, 
you understand so that um, you don't make a mistake with that investment. So I guess just ignoring the market signals is is um, is is, um, is is an important lesson I, I've taken uh, through my years of investing. I love that point, and then I kind of guess that raises another question. Just previously, you had mentioned that you look more at the fundamentals and the technicals. And if you're going to say listen to the market, wouldn't that mean that you listen more to the technicals and how the stock's trading? Or am I misunderstanding something? Yeah, um, just looking at valuation and also technicals of the market. Yes, you know, the, um, you know, we we do like um, on, on the equity side some more of your value plays, and sometimes you don't want to get stuck with a value trap. Um, so you want to make sure that you're you're seeing something, or you're understanding the risks that the market is is telling you is in the in the, in the investment. Um, that makes sense. And so, yeah. So as long as you're, you're understanding the risks associated, if you look for value, deep value, or whatever the case may be, even if it's beaten down, but as long as the, the metrics are there from a fundamental standpoint, you're happy more, and then you'll put more of a emphasis on that opposed to the actual way the stock is trading. So if the valuations are corrective, understood. Okay, that clarifies it. Thank you for that. So I guess the next question, Joe, a lot of people come on the show when they talk about value and Buffett talks about value and undervalued. How do, I mean, value like beauty is very subjective. How do you determine value and what traits do you look at to find something that's quote unquote undervalued or being mispriced by the market? Yeah, I think it is. Um, when looking for value, you really want to look at the actual quality of the business. Um, you know, a space that we we think is interesting here is the midstream energy space. Uh, many of these uh, companies are, are, are uh, own pipelines that uh, transport oil or gas on their on their pipelines. So they're valuable pieces of infrastructure um, that can't be replaced. You really can't build. It's really difficult to build new pipelines these days. So I guess from, from the standpoint of just looking at the business, this is a, these are businesses that are going to be around for, for years to come. Um, but in some cases, we're seeing, uh, uh, we think um, these investments uh, or these businesses not being um, given the correct valuation in the marketplace. Uh, these are companies with long-term contracts often um, and generate lots of free cash flow. And given that, you're seeing increased demand, particularly for natural gas in the U.S. These are valuable um, assets um, that you, know, you really can't replace. So there's um, the replacement value is a lot higher than where the market value is in many cases. Um, so I think that's that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, um, and also just looking at good management teams and, and good and uh, strong balance sheets. So I guess from a a value, like I'm just curious, and the listeners, I get a lot of questions after the guest comes on and says, oh, well, look for undervalued or strong balance sheets or look for valuations. Um, do you look at metrics like PE and you look at trailing PE? Or do you look forward PE to determine value? Or do you look at it, all the valuations in a group and look at all the banks, the PE, average PE ratio, let's say, is the teens, and you, you find one that's in the low teens or high single digits that'll be undervalued or do you compare it to the market? I guess if you can speak a little about how to determine value opposed to a value trap, that'd be very, just set some light on that topic, that'd be very helpful. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think there's many different ways to kind of look at valuation. Uh, certainly we'll look at PE, uh, also look at enterprise value, the EBITDA, which kind of incorporates the, the debt that a company would have on its balance sheet. So we look at those metrics versus um, its peer group, 
and also how they've traded versus the market over time. But also, I think, and also you can do, in many cases, particularly with, particularly with these midstream energy companies I was talking about that generate lots of free cash flow, you can also do a discounted cash flow analysis with many of these investments as well. Um, and, then also, and also, you can do some of the parts, because um, there might be different parts of the of the midstream business that these companies have that trade at different multiples. So, um, so I guess if you can kind of triangulate all those different valuation metrics, and that's how that's what we do to kind of determine whether uh, we think something's undervalued or not. Got it. That's very very helpful. Thank you for that clarification. So I guess um, Joe, next question for you is: What mistakes do you see people make in this business, and how do you avoid them from an investing or trading standpoint? Well, um, yeah, uh, you know, I think one thing I, I see investments uh, you know, um, investors do is maybe uh, they kind of ch- chase investments. Um, you know, I think it, it pays to be patient often with, with looking at something and just because uh, um, you know, everyone is on board with a name and, and likes it and it's, it's trading up, um, I think it sometimes can, be, can pay off to just to be, to be patient and look for your um, the spot where you would really feel the, uh, it's an attractive investment for you. Um, you know, I also mentioned the fact that you know, don't don't think that you're smarter than the market. I've seen people do that, where you know they they think everyone else's take on, on an investment is is incorrect and theirs is correct, and um, and that can sometimes bite them um, and hurt them in the long run. So those those are a couple couple of um, pieces of advice. Gotcha. That's uh, very very good. So um, those are some mistakes. So what about the best piece of advice you can share with the audience in the market or out of the market? Yeah, I, I, I think you, um, in, the, in terms of looking at your portfolio, not to um, get too caught up in what's happening um, in terms of the day-to-day movements of your portfolio. So I think you want to have a plan in terms of allocation to different asset classes and sort of stick with it through time. Um, and, you know, there might be, like, for example, there was a period in, in, in December of 2018 where uh, particularly in the preferred line and also most of, in most financial markets, um, you saw pretty big downtrends in, in preferred and also in the equity markets. You know, there might be some, some investors might, um, panic somewhat and start to sell their investments. But I think if you have a long-term time horizon and you're comfortable with your allocation to different asset classes, then you should, you should stick with it. Um, and, and I think that will help you in the long run. Yeah, I like that a lot. So, um, I guess, a few questions here, if, you're, if it's okay with you, Joe, on, on preferreds and income. How does interest rate policy from the Fed impact your outlook and or investment strategy with respect to income and preferreds? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we, we, we do have, we, we also listen to our uh, in-house economists here. And we also look at research by other economists outside of our firm to try to get a sense of where we think the economy is heading and also, where um, you know, what what we see, what our view on interest rates are going forward. Um, so, if we if we were really so preferred, preferred securities um, are long duration perpetual securities, so they tend to, they do tend to be more sensitive to interest rate movements. So that's something we have to be aware of. So, if we if we thought that interest rates were going to move up, um, 
a lot in the next 12 months, for example, you know, we would maybe have a little bit more cash. But one thing we could do is we could um, we could buy floating rate securities. And so if so we could really load up on those types of securities, which would help us mitigate the effects of, of higher interest rates. Um, so that's, you know, I think now we're in a period where we think we're in a lower for longer interest rate environment. So we, we're comfortable owning these, you know, uh, long duration perpetual securities because we think that they're attractive um, given where U.S. Treasury is and also where global yields are. Um, so, you know, and then we can, there are also things we can do to hedge our interest rate exposure by uh, um, use, using derivatives. We can short ten-year uh, Treasury futures. Um, that can help. That, that can help us uh, helps mitigate the effects of higher uh, higher interest rates. Um, so, yeah. So that's there's a couple tools we can use. Um, we can also buy. Uh, we do. We do have a bucket to buy some common equities uh, in our portfolios, as I mentioned. Um, if we thought that the economy was doing going to do really well, uh, for example, we could buy some energy integrated uh, oils with, with high dividend yields. Um, in, in, in better economic times, oil prices tend to do better, and which can you know, result in many of these stocks doing well. So that can that can also help us mitigate the effects of higher interest rates. So. A few tools, a few tools that we use that, that, that help us. Nice. So, um, how does the economy or the economic outlook impact the decision making? So, the Fed's interest rates, obviously, for income strategies, is very, very linear and straightforward. How about the economy? If you're expecting, like last year around this time, everybody was negative on the economy, expecting a possible double dip, recession, or whatever the case may be, or just slowing growth, whatever. Um, how does that impact your outlook from an investment standpoint? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think in that case where a recession might be on the horizon, uh, you, would, you would obviously have the Fed cutting rates, so that would result in lower rates, uh, which would be good for fixed income instruments. Um, the thing you have to worry about, though, is credit spreads widening. And that's again why we like uh, we like quality companies, um, particularly. And you know, we have an overweight to the utility sector in our portfolios versus our benchmark and our peers. And we think that those offer a lot of good nice yield, uh, a lot of good yield, and can um, it is not really leverage to the economic to the economy really because they're because utilities are regulated and commodity prices are actually uh, are actually borne by the end consumer. So therefore, you have very little um, volatility in their utility earnings and cash flows. Um, so those should um, hold up, and they have held up well during during recessionary type periods in the economy. Um, so that's that's what, how we think of it. If um, we would maybe, if we thought that was the case, we would maybe kind of take some of our portfolio away from the energy space and the, and the financial services space and, and kind of put it more into the utility space. Which just makes me know really well. We already we're already overweight. Understood, one hundred percent. So, and then the opposite, I'm assuming, would be true. Also, if you're expecting, if we're in a recession, you're expecting a recession to end, and more, I guess, better economic times to come ahead. You should probably do the opposite. We would do the opposite. Yeah, we, there, there are many uh, interesting energy hybrid, especially energy preferred names out there that offer a lot of yield. Uh, we could buy those. We could buy a little bit of energy common equities as well. And then we can just play financial services companies and we could we could buy that would um would do well in that kind of environment.
No, that's fantastic. So I guess um, final question I have for you today, Joe, just from education standpoint, I love to learn and, and preferreds and income is, is a great, like you said, o- often overlooked area. So while I have you like to just ask these questions for the audience to benefit as well. What about in your, in your opinion or your view, do you find a difference in invest? Like what's your sell discipline? Do you sell when something's overvalued? If you're looking to buy when things are undervalued or do you wait for a certain fundamental event to happen where the company's no longer quote unquote good or is it a external economic event or market event or you know yeah. what criteria if, if it's okay for you to shed some light on the selling side of it both for yeah, profit so, and um, for loss yeah i think it's uh, it's a lot of those things if um you know if if, if the economic environment changes or we think it's going to change and, and that could make one security for example an energy company if you thought we were going into a recession um we would you know, potentially look to um, lighten up or, or sell a security that's in the energy space that we thought was very levered to the economy. Um, you know, and also we, we look to sell our sell disciplines if, you know, we look at, uh, we have a thesis for each, each name in our portfolio. If it's a change in the thesis, that that would also be a catalyst for a sell as well. Um, you know, if they made, if a company made an acquisition that we thought was not, you know, that, um, wasn't a prudent uh, use of capital, and sort of that changed the thesis on the name, and then we would look to we would look to sell it. We also have um, we look at relative valuation as well, particularly okay. in the preferred space. So if it, it, it does hit that uh, you know that 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 yield target that is that we had in mind when we bought the security, then we would also look to sell it. That, that's a good point. Can you exp- elaborate a little bit on that relative uh, how that works? Yeah, I mean, if, um, if uh, for example, Bank of America preferred security, um, and what's interesting about preferreds as well is that it's kind of a, it could be somewhat of an inefficient market. So Bank of America, for example, can have four or five different issues. That was kind of why um, I was asking for you to elaborate <laughs> that exact point. <laughs> yeah, so they, so they could have several different preferred issues, and, and just because of the inefficiency, inefficiencies in the market, they can create a different yields. So, for example, you know, there might be a, uh, one preferred that might be trading at a, you know, 30 or 40 basis points uh, inside of another Bank of America preferred security. Uh, so that would be certainly a catalyst for us to sell that, maybe looking to buy another Bank of America preferred or look at a J.P. Morgan preferred or a Citi preferred. So we're constantly looking at the portfolio, kind of looking at the relative value within the actual um, space. Uh, with, with an actual um, issuer, meaning like Bank of America, there's several issues that they have outstanding, but also looking at it versus um, other other banks out there and their preferreds. Got it. That makes perfect sense. And if one gets too high, for whatever reason, relatively speaking, you might shift and rotate into a different one, depending on what's right. attractive for you at any given time. Well, Joe, this has been fantastic. Thank you kindly for coming on the show and sharing your story and your experience with us. And we look forward to having you on again uh, soon. What is the, before you go, Joe? What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, uh, I guess through my email, um, jbazoyatmanualizeam.com. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks for coming on, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great, thanks.